Welcome to Understand Murdoch, a podcast from The Post and Courier, South Carolina's largest newspaper. Our award-winning reporters have spent more than a year digging into the Murdoch saga to bring you the latest news and in-depth analysis as we covered the story of drugs, deceit, and death in South Carolina's rural low country. And now we're here to provide quick daily updates on Alec Murdoch's highly anticipated double murder trial in Colleton County. Welcome back to Understand Murdoch. I'm Nathan Stevens here with Jocelyn Greshik, who's part of our team of reporters covering the trial in Walterboro. Jocelyn, let's get right to it. There was a bomb threat today at the Colleton County Courthouse. Walk us through what happened. Are you doing all right? All that stuff. <laughs> yes, I'm okay. Thank you. Uh, So prosecutors had just called up their next witness to testify when a police officer walked into the courtroom and signaled to Judge Clifton Newman, who immediately sent jurors out of the room. And then authorities opened up the courtroom's rear doors, which are typically blocked off. And then people just began to spill out of the courthouse. Were you inside the room as this happened? No, I was actually across the street in an overflow space for media, and we were all just kind of confused about what was happening. We knew people had been evacuated. We just didn't know why at first, but we paid attention to how people were exiting the courtroom. We kind of ran outside and were observing this, and we saw that they weren't running or screaming, and there didn't even appear to be any real sense of urgency from officials in terms of getting everyone out. So that sort of eased our worries. And our initial thoughts were that maybe there was a gas leak or something. Do you know where uh, Alec was during all of this? Yes. So he was quickly shuffled out of the courthouse and into the same van that brings him here each day. And we believe he was taken to a nearby jail to wait for this to be resolved. And we also know jurors were transported away from the courthouse in vans too, but then most everyone else, like the lawyers and media and people who'd come to just watch the trial, we all stayed close by and people were still grabbing lunch from the food trucks and things like that. So the courtroom was pretty full when it was evacuated. Yeah, definitely seemed that way from watching the live stream and listening to colleagues. So the courtroom has gotten progressively more packed as this trial goes on and more people are driving down for the day to just watch testimony. And, you know, Attorney General Alan Wilson has been inside the courtroom for about the past week. And today we even had students from the University of South Carolina who were there watching for the day. What a day to have a field trip. Uh, How do you learn about this was a bomb threat and that was the reason for the evacuation? Yeah, so we began hearing murmurs that it might be a bomb threat pretty soon after everyone was evacuated, but we weren't able to confirm it and report that until one of the defense attorneys let us know. And then the state law enforcement division followed up with a statement a few minutes after that confirming It was, in fact, a bomb threat. It was investigating the threat, but they did not provide any more details. And then one of our colleagues, Thad Moore, learned from court administrators that the threat placed this supposed bomb in the judges' chambers, which is actually the most secure part of the building. And we also heard that 
it came in the form of a phone call and it was a low male voice giving the threat. Can you describe the scene outside the courthouse? Did law enforcement shut the area down or anything like that? Yeah, so they shut down a few lanes of traffic on the main road that runs next to the courthouse, but cars were still being allowed through the whole time. They did, however, shut down all the sidewalks around the perimeter of the courthouse, like only law enforcement could walk kind of around that immediate area. And then they also shut down a block of the street directly behind the courthouse. So no vehicle traffic or pedestrian traffic could move through there. Um, I'd say the scene outside was fairly calm for the most part, though at one point, an older woman apparently tripped and hurt her knee and had to be taken away on a stretcher in an ambulance. And for a while, we didn't know if court would even come back in session, but I saw the prosecution and defense teams walk back inside around 2.30 in the afternoon, and they told me they'd been given the all clear. So the bomb threat may have been a hoax. Yeah, I think it's safe to say the threat was fake, but of course, authorities, you know, have to do their due diligence and take stuff like this seriously and check it out and and make sure that they can safely clear the scene. Okay. And court ultimately started back up again today, right? Yeah. So as people notice the attorneys start to go back inside, they immediately rushed to form a line to be let back in. And I actually saw two women kind of playfully race each other to see who could get there first. Um, And all the spectators had to wait there for probably a good 20 or 30 minutes. And it got pretty hot outside. And I saw one woman who apparently passed out, but luckily paramedics were already close by and were able to quickly help her. And then eventually the vans transporting the jurors pulled up and they all got out. And that was followed by the van carrying Alec. Okay. Well, glad everyone got to safely return to the courthouse. Can you walk us through what testimony jurors heard today after all that? Sure. So jurors heard from a couple witnesses this morning who spoke to Alec's alleged financial crimes, including his former paralegal, a woman named Annette Griswold. And we didn't learn too much new information from her, but she did provide some good insight into Alec's character and demeanor. What do you mean by that? Well, Annette has known Alec for a long time, and she testified he could be a difficult person to work for. She said he was quite chaotic and kept weird hours at the law firm, especially compared to some of the other lawyers. And Annette also said she noticed a particular change in Alec's behavior in the wake of the 2019 boat crash, which killed 19-year-old Mallory Beach. And Alec's son, Paul, was of course, ultimately charged in this crash for drunkenly piloting the boat. And Alec was also later named as a defendant in a civil lawsuit filed on behalf of Mallory's estate. And how did she say his behavior had changed? Well, Annette testified Alec was always on his phone after the crash and was rarely available, even when he was working in the office. And she described it as just kind of a tense time overall. 
And she could tell the whole ordeal was weighing heavily on him. And she said it seemed like the crash and the pending civil case was consuming Alec's life. So how does Annette's testimony connect back to the alleged financial crimes? Her experiences link to a lot of what Jeannie Seckinger, the law firm's chief financial officer, spoke about yesterday. Annette testified she helped uncover in September of 2021 how Alec had stolen some legal fees he won in a lawsuit. And this ultimately led to the uncovering of what prosecutors say is his decade-long spree of fraud and theft. And how did court end today? Well, after the bomb threat, prosecutors picked up their questioning of two witnesses who helped analyze data that was extracted from the Chevy Suburban Alec was driving the night of the killings. And did they find anything useful? So an engineer with the FBI ultimately had to be the one to extract and analyze this data. And he testified today that they were able to recover call logs from June 7th, 2021, the date of the killings, but no location data. And authorities really wanted to get a sense of what time the car might have been moving that night. But the FBI engineer said he wasn't able to definitively pinpoint this information either. So instead, he sort of came up with a way to gauge when the suburban might have been moving. And how did he do that? So he looked specifically at times that the car was shifted in and out of park, which this data did definitively show. And he highlighted all those timestamps down to the second and put them on a spreadsheet. And the records seem to align with Alec's story that he left Moselle shortly after 9 p.m. June 7th. The car was apparently put back in park around 9.22 after what appears to have been about a 16-minute drive to his mother's home in nearby Almeida. And then after 21 minutes, which is roughly the amount of time Alec spent with his mother that night, the vehicle moved out of park again. And records show that the Suburban parked again shortly after 10, which we know is around the time Alec told investigators he had returned to Moselle and discovered Maggie and Paul's bodies. So what can we expect tomorrow? So tomorrow we'll start back up with defense attorneys cross-examining this FBI engineer, and we might learn more about this car data. Thanks, Jocelyn, and stay safe. Thank you. That's all we have for now. For more in-depth coverage of this trial, as well as the latest news on the Murdoch story at large, stay tuned to postandcourier.com slash Murdoch. You can find us on Twitter at Post and Courier. We would love if you could send questions, feedback, and tips to our Murdoch email address. That's Murdoch at postandcourier.com. And please... Also take a minute to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to keep up to date on the trial, subscribe to Murdoch News, a premium newsletter from the Post and Courier, bringing you exclusive first-hand insight from local South Carolina reporters who have covered this saga from the beginning. Subscribe at postandcourier.com slash Murdoch News, and we'll bring you exclusive reporting on the civil and criminal cases of Alec Murdoch. We'll see you next time.